The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, this morning, after spending a couple of weeks looking at other things, we are returning to our journey through the book of Acts, passage by passage. We'll be picking up where we left off a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. When you think of people performing miracles, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I think for many of us, it's probably somebody like Benny Hinn, for example. Specifically, for, for me personally, I know I get the mental image of this, uh, this YouTube video that I saw that's made its rounds. It's pretty old now, but perhaps many of you have seen it as well. It's of Benny Hinn sticking out his hand at people and those people falling to the ground. It's uh, very appropriately set to the song, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. And it's very, a very strange video, but he's there. I mean, it, sometimes it's not even just one person either. There are clips of him sticking out his hand and entire groups of people, even dozens of people, falling to the ground and, and, and fainting. And then there are a few clips of him. He takes off the white suit jacket, right? And he's swinging that thing around like a lightsaber, knocking people down and supposedly healing them. So that's just the image that comes to my mind when I think of modern day miracle workers. Now, hopefully... All of us here understand that those antics are absolutely ridiculous and that Benny Hinn is a fraud. However, thinking of his purported miracles raises several legitimate questions. First of all, do genuine miracles still exist today? Do they still happen? Or perhaps an even more challenging question, do genuine miracle workers still exist? And if so, what's their purpose? How do they fit in with what the Bible says God is doing in this world? And as we look at our main passage in Acts 9, these questions become perhaps even more relevant and intriguing. Because we see here in Acts 9 that miraculous healings were an important part of the Apostle Peter's evangelistic ministry. That's the main idea of the passage, that miraculous healings were an important part of Peter's evangelistic ministry. And that's a fact that deserves exploration. So look with me first at verses 32 through 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we learn here that Peter isn't staying in Jerusalem, but is instead traveling around to many of the towns around Jerusalem in order to engage in ministry. And one of the towns he comes to 
is Lydda, which as you can see on the map here, is about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. And it says that Peter encounters a man there named Aeneas. And this guy has been paralyzed and confined to his bed for eight years. In other words, his condition is you know, pretty much hopeless. But Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. So we see here that Peter's not the source of this healing, but is merely the instrument of the healing. Who's the source? Jesus. That's right. He's the one ultimately accomplishing this miracle. And then after Peter declares to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, he tells him something that every parent with children living at home has been waiting to discover in the Bible, right? He tells him, go, arise, and make your bed. So now all you parents who are frustrated with your kids for leaving their bed a mess, you finally have biblical grounds for telling them to make their bed, right? Amen. Now, boom, Acts 9.34. However, before you go and have your kids memorize this verse, I do have to break the news to you that the reason Peter's uh, saying this is actually has nothing to do with cleanliness, sadly enough, but is instead intended as a demonstration of the legitimacy and extent of this miracle. It's kind of like uh, when Jesus healed a paralyzed man in John chapter five and tells him to, quote, pick up your mat and walk, right? Jesus did that so that everyone could see this healing was both complete and instantaneous. And it's probably the same here in Acts chapter nine with Peter. And it must have been a pretty powerful display because verse 35 records that all the residents of Lydda and the surrounding region of Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So that was the result of this miracle. People turned to the Lord. They became Christians. The story then continues in verses 36 through 43. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room since Lydda was near Joppa. Or since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Peter's next stop is a town named Joppa. Uh, looking at the map again, Joppa was slightly over 10 miles away from Lydda, even farther to the west. And we're told in these verses that a woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas, when translated, if, if that were me, I would probably go by the name Tabitha, just saying. Uh, but uh, she had tragically 
become ill and die. Her death was uh, especially tragic because, as verse 36 states, she was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, One example of that, recorded in verse 39, was the articles of clothing that Tabitha made for the widows of the town. And keep in mind that this wasn't just a thoughtful gesture, right? Uh, This wasn't just some kind of knitting club that that she had going on. I remember uh, when our first child, Caleb, was born, there was an older lady in the the church we were attending at the time that very thoughtfully made a nice green blanket for Caleb, uh, one that has become very dear to him. And that was such a heartwarming gesture. Like We really appreciated the thought and the care that went into her knitting that blanket. And yet what Tabitha was doing here was actually even more significant than that because she was providing articles of clothing that were desperately needed. Like, this was an example of her providing for the material needs of the poor and the vulnerable. And so Peter, here he arrives on the scene and finds a crowd of all these widows who have been blessed by Tabitha in the room where Tabitha's body lay. And they're apparently quite a handful to have around. So Peter's first step is to kick them all out of the room. It says Peter put them all outside. Uh, I guess sometimes you just need quiet so you can concentrate. I don't know. I certainly identify with that. But then it records how Peter knelt down, prayed, and said to the body, Tabitha, arise. And that's exactly what she did. Incredibly, Tabitha became alive again. We then read in verse 42 that this became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Again, the result of this miracle was many believing in Jesus and embracing him. And that leads us to an important topic I would like to address, looking not only here at Acts 9, but also at the entire New Testament. What are the purpose of these miracles. Why do we see miracles happening in the New Testament? Well, miracles functioned in four main ways. First, they functioned as expressions of God's love and compassion. When Jesus performs miraculous healings, we often see evidence or even direct statements of the compassion behind his actions. Uh, for example, in Luke seven thirteen, when Jesus sees a widow who had just lost her only son and likely her only source of material and financial support, it says that, quote, he had compassion on her. Then the next few verses describe him raising her son from the dead. So one reason for Jesus' miracles and presumably for those of the apostles as well was simply because they cared about people. They were demonstrating God's love and compassion for those who were afflicted in various ways. Second, miracles in the New Testament are intended as signs confirming the truth of the gospel. Jesus challenges his skeptical opponents in John 10, 37 and 38 by saying to them, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
So Jesus expected people to conclude on the basis of his miracles that what he was teaching was true. Miracles confirm the truth of the gospel. Then third, miracles in the New Testament serve as illustrations of the blessings of the gospel. The blind being enabled to see, for example, illustrates us having our spiritual eyes open to spiritual truth and reality. The sick being healed illustrates God healing us of our spiritual sickness, the sickness of sin. The deliverance of people from demonic oppression illustrates us being freed from everything that oppresses and enslaves us. Most notably, the sinful desires of our own hearts. And of course, I'm sure you can figure out what people being raised from the dead illustrates. Us who are dead in our sin, the Bible says, being raised to spiritual life. All of these physical ailments are employed as metaphors in the Bible to speak of our spiritual ailments prior to embracing the gospel. And so people being delivered from physical ailments through miraculous healing is intended to illustrate the way in which we can all be delivered from our spiritual ailments through the gospel. Then finally, not only do miracles in the New Testament serve as expressions of God's love and compassion and as signs confirming the truth of the gospel and as illustrations of the blessings of the gospel, they also, number four, serve as foretastes of the fullness of the kingdom. That is, they give us a foretaste of what things will be like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. The kingdom of God, by the way, refers to God's sovereign rule over his people and the realm of blessing that exists under that rule. And in some ways, the kingdom arrived when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But in other ways, The kingdom won't come in its fullness until Jesus returns and starts ruling over this world in a very visible and direct way. So theologians often refer to this paradox as the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. In some respects, the kingdom is already, but in others, it's not yet. It's kind of like that first hint of light in the morning. You know, there's a certain period of time in the morning before the sun rises when the sky begins to get slightly brighter. All of a sudden, it's not totally dark anymore. You can't see the sun directly quite yet, but you do notice the sky getting brighter. It's like the rays of the the sun go ahead of the sun and give you a glimpse and we might say a foretaste of what things will be like when the sun actually rises. That's similar to the way it is right now with the kingdom. And this message of the kingdom was something that Jesus emphasized throughout his ministry. We might even say it was the central theme of his teaching. For example, we read in Matthew 9, 35, that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction. So notice first how Jesus' message is summarized. It says he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was his central theme. And not only that, but notice what that's linked to. The miracles he did, right? He went around, it says, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and along with that, healing every disease and every affliction. What's the connection? Well, Jesus was performing those miracles in order to give people a foretaste of what the kingdom will be like when it comes in its fullness. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, there won't be any more blindness or demonic oppression or inability to walk or disease of any kind. Even death will be a thing of the past. And God will make everything new and perfect. And even now, we can see glimpses of that. Just like the sun rises in the morning, God's future kingdom is breaking into the here and now. And one of the ways we see that is in miraculous healings. They offer us a foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom. Now, returning to Acts 9, and as we think about these miracles, the, the question that's probably been on the minds of many in this room since the beginning of this message is the question of what to think about purported miracles and miracle workers today. Uh, thinking specifically of Acts 9, should we expect miracles to be a part of the ministries of churches today like they were a part of Peter's ministry? And how should we evaluate leaders and churches that do claim to have miracle-working ministries? And probably goes without saying that different people believe different views, different things about that. And so let me introduce you to four categories of people for you to be aware of. Uh, to make things easier, and since I'm a, I'm a really good preacher, these all start with the letter C, all right? That's what they taught us in seminary. They're alliterated, but the alliteration, alliteration actually works, all right? So four things that all tar start with the letter C. First, you have charlatans. Charlatans are people who claim to be miracle workers, but are actually being intentionally deceptive, usually in order to get money or fame. They're frauds, really, who prey on people's emotions and desires and vulnerabilities and basically take advantage of people to get what they want. And so how can you tell if someone is a charlatan? Well, let me first put it this way, a little bit more informally. If they're talking about prayer cloths, <laughs> that's usually a, a dead giveaway. If they're soliciting financial donations by talking about planting a seed, another dead giveaway. If they are on TBN, almost a dead giveaway. 
But even better than being on the lookout for these stereotypical things, and we could also talk about white suits and pocket protectors, but I, I won't go there. But uh, biblically speaking, there are two more biblical signs of, of being a charlatan. Two things you want to really look out for. False teaching and ungodly character. So thinking first of false teaching, one of the things that we see in our main passage of scripture in Acts 9 is that miracles served to confirm the truth of the gospel message that Peter preached. So God here in Acts 9, he's authenticating what Peter is preaching. And so if there's a preacher who isn't preaching the authentic gospel message, I can't think of a reason why God would enable that person to do miracles. God's not going to authenticate something that isn't authentic. Now, Satan might enable that person to perform miracles, and there are certainly examples in the Bible of that happening, but God's not the one behind it. So if someone's not preaching the gospel, and by preaching the gospel, I don't just mean mentioning the name of Jesus a lot or throwing in a few Bible verses here and there, but rather preaching the biblical gospel in its richness and fullness, right? If someone's not doing that, then we should assume that any supposed miracles they perform are false and that the preacher is a charlatan. Second, we can tell if someone's a charlatan by observing their character. Ungodly character is another huge sign of a charlatan. Jesus states in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Did you hear that? You will recognize them by their charisma. <laughs> you will recognize them by their fruits, it says, by the, their character. Now, if someone's very famous, it can be difficult to evaluate their fruits since you don't really know the person. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors or how they really treat people or how they, how they really live. But one example of a character issue that you can look for from a distance is greed. Do they exhibit an unhealthy interest in earthly wealth or prosperity? Are they living a life of excessive luxury? That's a sign of a charlotte. So that's one character or one category to be aware of when it comes to miraculous healings, charlatans. And then secondly, in addition to charlatans, you have another character or category rather, which is charismatics. This is a term commonly employed to refer to very well-meaning Christians with a, a true heart for the Lord, but who, who believe that all of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament are still in operation today and place great emphasis on practicing them, uh, specifically the so-called miraculous gifts, such as speaking in tongues and prophesying, and of course, like we're seeing here in Acts chapter 9, miraculous healings. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, charismatics do, uh, despite their good intentions, they practice the gifts many times in a rather, I'd have to say, careless and disorderly way ignoring biblical instructions for how the gifts should be practiced 
And uh, they also tend to have an unfortunate lack of interest in theological discernment. Um, Charismatic churches will often tolerate a wide array of false teachings, sometimes even teachings that are downright heretical. Now there are, I want to be clear, there are many good brothers and sisters in the Lord in charismatic churches, uh, people who are very godly and uh, that, that we should seek good fellowship with. Um, however, there are some tendencies in the movement as a whole that are rather concerning. And then the third category to be aware of is continuationists. As the label implies, continuationists believe that the miraculous gifts are intended to continue beyond the era of the New Testament and that they won't cease until Jesus returns. So in that sense, they're like charismatics. However, unlike charismatics, continuationists are much more concerned usually about being orderly in their exercise of the gifts and very careful to submit to scripture. For that reason, I've uh, sometimes heard them referred to as uh, charismatics with a seatbelt, which probably seems about right. But uh, their belief in the gifts is also much more nuanced than charismatics. Uh, So for example, with the gift of healing, most continuationists would say that the gift of healing is simply a believer praying for someone to be healed and God answering that prayer. And maybe this particular believer sees God answering those kinds of prayers a lot in their life. And so when you think about the gift of healing, as a continuationist would see it, don't think about famous miracle workers ministering to crowds of thousands. Instead, think about ordinary believers in normal churches who are praying very faithfully for others to be healed, sometimes even praying over people, and God very frequently answering those prayers. Also, continuationists tend to have a much deeper appreciation for the importance of sound doctrine and are much more theologically thoughtful many times and discerning than charismatics. So, for example, respected um, continuationists include respected scholars such as John Piper and Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms and D.A. Carson. Also, full disclosure, as uh, some of you may be able to tell by now, I myself also hold continuationist views. And then finally, there are cessationists who get their name from the fact that they believe miraculous gifts, as described in the New Testament, have ceased. So cessationists would say that there, these records that we see of, of miracles taking place in the book of Acts are descriptive rather than prescriptive. So that's how a cessationist would approach Acts chapter 9. They would say it's descriptive of what did happen, but not prescriptive of what should happen or what does happen after the New Testament era. Now, an important clarification Cessationists still believe that miracles happen today and would have no problem praying for somebody to be miraculously healed. They just wouldn't believe that God answering that prayer is an example of the spiritual gift of healing mentioned in the New Testament, nor would they believe that there are certain people who are gifted in that way. 
So in practice, a cessationist would approach a sick person in a way very similar to how a continuationist would approach the person. They would both simply pray for healing. The main difference is that the continuationist would believe that an answered prayer for that might be indicative of a spiritual gift of healing, whereas the cessationist would simply say it's an answered prayer and nothing more. Um, And by the way, I do believe that both the cessationist and continuationist views are biblically responsible views. And there are certainly both views uh, welcome in our church and existing among our current membership today. So that's an overview for you that I hope will be helpful as you continue to study the Bible and seek to come to your own conclusions about whether we should be seeking today the kinds of miracles that we see in the book of Acts. However, the main thing I want to make sure we all understand today and that we really drive home is where our focus should be. Regardless of your view of the miraculous gifts, our focus shouldn't be on the gifts, but on the giver. It should be on Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, Peter's ministry revolved not around performing miraculous signs, but rather telling people about Jesus. That's what he was doing, right? He tells Aeneas in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. And then both in verses 35 and verse 42, we're told that the result of the miracles Peter performed was that people turned to the Lord, verse 35, and believed in the Lord, verse 42. That was the whole point. That was Peter's mission, right? Peter traveled around to all these towns, not primarily to minister to people's physical ailments, but rather primarily to minister to their spiritual ailments by telling them about Jesus. I'm also reminded of the way the Apostle Paul summarizes his ministry in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He states, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not miraculous healings, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Friends, it is all about Jesus. The whole point of miraculous healings is to turn people's attention toward Jesus. It's kind of like, in some ways, the Kennywood sign. Imagine that I took my family to Kennywood but that we spent the whole day just out there in the parking lot admiring the sign. I mean, we might look at the the beautiful colors of the sign and the the impressive height of the sign and just all the different features of, of that sign. Now, obviously, if we did that, we'd be missing what's undoubtedly the most prominent feature of the sign, right? The sign is a huge arrow pointing people to the park. It's very obvious that the people who put up that sign did so, not so the people would admire the sign, but so that the sign would lead people to visit the park and ride the rides and probably spend lots of money 
right? And that's the purpose of miraculous healings as well. As we can see very clearly here in Acts 9 and in many other places throughout Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament, miracles are like huge, bright, arrow-shaped signs pointing people to Jesus. That's the whole point. Regardless of whether it's Jesus directly performing the miracles, like we see in the Gospels, or whether it's Jesus indirectly performing the miracles through his apostles in Acts, we see Jesus in all of the miracles. We see the power of Jesus in doing what would under normal circumstances be impossible. We see the compassion of Jesus in reaching out to those who are needy and hurting. We see the grace of Jesus toward those who haven't done anything to deserve it. We see the supremacy of Jesus over nature and disease and demons and even death as well as everything else. Miracles are intended to show us the glory, the multifaceted glory of Jesus and to turn our gaze toward him. Because guys, our greatest need isn't for deliverance from physical ailments, but rather deliverance from our sin. Our sins have cut us off from a holy God and made us deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus endured that wrath in our place on the cross. He suffered God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And then three days later, Jesus accomplished the greatest miracle of all when he rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, and proving his legitimacy beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he invites us to share in his victory and to be rescued from our sins as we put our trust in him as our all-sufficient Savior. And guys, it's our common interest in Jesus that brings this church together. Some might be cessationists. Some might be continuationists. A few might even be charismatics, and we love them. But we are one church, united by the gospel and hopefully showing the love of Christ and the humility of Christ to one another. And very practically speaking, if Jesus is the centerpiece of our lives, and if he is foremost in our affections, then surely we can experience deep, meaningful fellowship with each other regardless of our view of the gifts. As A.W. Tozer once observed, pianos tuned to the same fork will be in tune with one another. It doesn't matter if there's a hundred of the pianos or if they're, they come in all different shapes and styles and sizes. All of those pianos will be in tune with one another if they're tuned to the same tuning fork. 
And that's my prayer for our church as well, that, that we would be so captivated by Jesus and so in love with him that all these kinds of secondary theological differences, that just wouldn't be a big deal to us. Also, as I think about what we see happening here in Acts 9 and the way God was so obviously at work through Peter, I don't think we can leave this text without asking ourselves whether we have a burden to see God at work in our day and in our midst. Should we not be burdened and, and should our hearts not ache to see God at work? And I'm not just talking about miraculous healings. I'm talking about everything we should desire. Let me ask you this. What would it look like to see God at work in your family? What would it look like to see God at work in your workplace or among your neighbors? What would it look like to see God at work in your community group? What would it look like to see him at work in our church? And does your heart ache to see God at work in that way? Even better, how fervently are you praying for God to be at work. Just like Peter knelt down in verse 40 and prayed, the only way we have any right at all to expect God to do anything in our midst is through our prayers. God help us if now that we have a building and now that our church seems to be entering into a period of greater stability, that we allow ourselves to be comfortable and lose our sense of utter desperation to see God at work. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what stuff we own. It doesn't matter what resources we have. If we don't have God's blessing, we don't have anything. If God isn't at work in our midst, guys, this ship is sunk. Are you praying for God to be at work? Many years ago, a group of five college students traveled to London to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. They arrived at the church building early on Sunday morning and discovered that the doors were still locked. But as they waited on the steps of the church for the doors to be opened, a man they didn't recognize approached them and asked them if they would like to see the heating apparatus of the church. Of course, that's not what they had come for, but they figured they didn't have anything better to do, so they might as well go and see this heating apparatus and perhaps they could get a tour of the rest of the church building while they were doing it. So the man guided them into the building, down a long flight of stairs, and through a lengthy hallway on the, on the lower level. Then at the end of the hallway, he opened a door and revealed 
a large room filled with 700 people on their knees in prayer. The guide, who was none other than Charles Spurgeon himself, then turned and said to the five visitors, that is the heating apparatus of this church. May it be so with us as well. Thanking both of our organized prayer meeting on Wednesday evenings as well as our own personal prayers throughout the week. May it be so with us.